You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. How much money should you have in savings at each age? Let's go by 10-year brackets, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, so on. Ted Rossman with Bankrate.com and CreditCards.com. Thank you, Ted, for your time. Let's start with age 20, 20s. How much should be in savings during that period of your life? You're really just getting started at that point. The experts at Fidelity say that by your 30th birthday, you should aim to have about one time your salary in retirement savings. Hmm. That goes up to about three times your salary by 40, six times your salary by 50, and eight times your salary by 60. I would stress, though, that these are just guidelines. I mean, if you're behind, we don't want to get discouraged and give up. There's certainly still time to catch up, but these are some benchmarks that are out there. The core in this audience, late 30s and into early 50s. That's pretty much the core into their 50s. So at, at that age, let, let's round it up to let's round it up to 40 and 50. Let's say individuals are behind. So any suggestions on how they can catch up? I know there are limits on what you can you know claim in your taxes, and some of these programs also put limits on how much you can put in there. So any suggestions on what they could do to catch up? I think really the best advice is slow and steady wins the race. You're not going to get there overnight, but basically getting in that habit of saving and investing. A 401k is a great tool because it's tax advantaged. There's often an employer match and it's systematic. Every paycheck money gets automatically transferred into this dedicated retirement investment plan. That I think is really the key. Try to contribute at least enough to get the employer match because that's free money, and then maybe dial it up over time. So if you're contributing 5% now, maybe in six months you can bump that up to 6 or 7%, or maybe next year you can bump it up even further, or the next time you get a raise. I think the idea is really twofold. I mean, one is that habit of saving, and then I think the other one is out of sight, out of mind. You know, if you don't get your hands on the money, you're less likely to spend it. I think it's important to make that good decision once and then just automatically repeat it. How much money should you have in that retirement piggy bank? We're looking at different age brackets from bankrate.com and creditcards.com, Ted Rossman. So you're saying playing more scratch-off lotto tickets, that's not going to work right now to try to catch up. <laughs> that would not be an advisable <laughs> retirement plan. Yeah, we, we definitely want to you know get in that habit of saving and investing. I, I know it's easier said than done. By the way, when it comes to emergency savings, you can get 5% right now on a totally liquid, totally federally insured account. So you know that's another goal that, of course, there's a lot of hands in the wallet, and I understand money can be tight, and it's difficult to set money aside for these priorities. But it is really important. I mean, obviously, when it comes to retirement savings, the earlier, the better. If you start saving in your 20s, and you know every dollar you invest might be worth 20, 30, even $40 by the time you retire. But like I said, if you're a little bit older, you're a little bit behind, it's certainly not time to give up. I mean, it, it still adds up over time. Uh, the stock market traditionally has gained about 10% a year on average. I know it hasn't been so hot the past mm-hmm. year or so, but yes. we don't want to time the market. We, okay. we want to systematically attack this. All right. Ted Rossman joining me with some financial advice. Ballpark figure, Ted, I suspect this is something that probably rolls in your head. How many Americans, working Americans, are actually saving 
for the future? Is it half? Is it one third? Is it hopefully more than that? Because I have a bad feeling that we got way, way too many folks that are deep in debt and have no emergency savings. And they're hoping on Social Security to be there in the future to give them something every month. I believe it's about three quarters of Americans are participating in a workplace retirement plan. These are really important tools because of the tax advantages and because of the automation. A friend of mine mentioned this to me, reminded me of this. Great idea. You could suck away a little bit of money for your kids on a regular basis. By the time they're 18, they could have a substantial size savings account. If you continue providing the same amount, it's like... 100 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, something like that. By the time they're well into their 30s, they could have hundreds of thousands of dollars in capital waiting for them to invest in something. What would be the best way to, to sock away some money for the kids long term as soon as they show up when they're born? Yeah, you're right. Albert Einstein is credited with saying that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Basically, this idea that even a little bit of money set aside early if it's growing 10% a year, and it's doubling every seven years, that can be powerful over time. Of course, you have workplace retirement plans, you have 529 plans, which are tax-advantaged college savings plans. If you want really open-ended investment opportunities, something like a brokerage account is a good idea because there aren't any restrictions on when you can access that money. Um, but I, I think that habit of starting early and often, you know, whether you talk about it as slow and steady wins the race or pay yourself first or the millionaire next door. I mean, there are some real success stories, but it really starts with that habit of saving and investing early and often. Ted, thank you for your time, brother. Ted Rossman with Bankrate.com. This is the Sergio Show. Published research on better sleep. Pretty good study. 172,000 adults in our country. That's a pretty good sized number. The five healthy sleeping habits that could help you live longer. So let me bring in a sleep pro on this. Sleep expert, Dr. Max Kerr. I'll tell you what, Dr. Max, if it came to sleeping, you know, knowing how good I sleep at night, how much more sleep I would I desire every single night, you let me sleep eight, nine hours, I'll take it. I mean, I, I could receive a doctorate on that one, but uh, yours is more based on the science of sleeping. So... Yes, what, sir. Yes, sir. What are the the five uh, key, uh, the five healthy sleeping habits you can share with us to well, sleep well, better and live longer? I, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we want to go to sleep at the same time. Uh, our bodies are bodies of habit. We are people of habit, so it's very important for us to have a habit of actually going to sleep. And so the body is going to wind down its clocks at the same time. Okay. Uh, and so we definitely want to try to go to sleep at, at, the, at the same time, try to try to mimic that throughout the week. Sure. Um, secondarily, we want to wake up at the same time. So, you know, it's going to be different for, difficult for you because you have to wake up so, so early to give us all this great news. <laughs> um, but that being said, we want to have a routine where we wake up at the same time, and we want that to be about anywhere from seven to nine hours. Nine hours is actually an ideal uh, amount of time, according to our literature. Um, that seven, those seven to nine hours will, uh, will give us all the sleep uh, cycles that we actually need to only to restore both our mind as well as our body. Um, you know, daytime uh, light is very important. So, you know, getting out, especially in the morning light, uh, when the sun rays are hitting that, that really beautiful hue and we get to see the nice morning colors, 
that's a great time for us to go out and take a walk and get get some of that l- sunlight into oh, our that eyeballs. So Those nice. will, that will actually. Yeah. yeah, that will actually help set our circadian rhythms to be able to go to sleep on time. Yeah. Um, also, we want to be active throughout the day. Being active throughout the day is very important because we have this phenomenon known as sleep drive. The more we do during the day, the more likely we're going to need to go to sleep in the evening and we're going to set that clock appropriately. Yeah. Um, and also, we want to try to avoid late night uh uh, sunlight or and or um, screen time. Uh, we like to try to get all of the the televisions, all the screens outside of the bedroom. We want to keep the bedroom for both sleeping and all the fun things that should be going on in the bedroom. But out, when, when we're watching or, or using devices, we want to try to keep that out of the bedroom so we don't trick the body into thinking that it's a new day. Uh, we want the body to fall in line with the natural rhythms of the world. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, great advice. Again, go to bed, same time. Wake up, same time. Get out during the morning light. That sounds so delicious. You know, because of this crazy work schedule, Doc. By the way, sleep expert Dr. Max Kerr is my guest right now. Because of my crazy schedule, the only days of the week that I can enjoy the morning sun, uh, early in the morning when it's still a little cloudy and the sun's not beating me down, is early in the morning, Saturday morning or Sunday morning. And those beautiful, I love if I if I had a oh, chance, the best time of the day. oh man, if I had a chance for the, to enjoy the morning light every single day, I would. But you know, <laughs> I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, uh, you know, if if you have that luxury, amigo, whatever it is that you do for a living, you're able to sleep till hopefully go to bed around ten o'clock and sleep till six in the morning and go out and do a brisk walk and then take advantage of it. My goodness, I, how I wish I had something like that. You mentioned sleep cycles. Sometimes because of how hectic things are at home, I got a 15-year-old and a 10-year-old, and you know those dudes are busy, and sometimes they don't shut down when they should. Um, I, I will only get about, eh, about five hours, five-ish, or maybe under that, nightly, weeknights before work. And I tell you, there's some mornings, that the alarm will wake me in the middle of a dream. Uh, there's a big difference in how I feel Saturday morning after dreaming uh, to my brain's content. So whatever my, this satiating, you know, satisfying my brain, uh, there's a big difference between how I feel on a Saturday morning uh, or uh, compared to a, a Tuesday, Wednesday morning when I did not get that amount of sleep. And it's, it's that's, the dream cycle is, is a, a, a sleep cycle, right? When you're in deep sleep, that's when it rousts me awake. I, how bad is that, that it's happening on a daily basis, almost on a daily basis now? Of like it, I'm in the middle of a dream that I, I don't want to leave, and that thing wakes me up. Well, you're, you're extremely intuitive to your body, so I, I got to give you that. Um, so traditionally, what we believe is that during dream cycle is what the REM cycle is. And that's when we're actually processing the mental, um, all, all the mental cycles that we've had throughout the day. So we're taking short-term memory, putting them into long-term memory. We're also doing a thing that's called, uh, we're cleaning and cleansing our brain through what's called the glymphatic cycle. So all the brain and neurochemistry that's going on in our brain actually gets cleansed and cleaned up. And so long-term, what we want to see is we want to see our, when we do maximize our REM cycles, we see that we see a, a greater decrease in dementia and Alzheimer's. Now, if we're waking up during a dream cycle, that might mean that we're shortchanging our REM cycles. And so, again, if you have to wake up so early, uh, we really want to get 
five, uh, seven to nine hours of sleep. So we want to try to plan when we go to sleep around that time. And I know that's very difficult for those of us that do have young kids and we want to spend time with them. Yeah. Um, so for me, for an example, I wake up at four every morning. So I'm going to try to get up or go to sleep around eight, eight thirty. Um, it, even though that short changes me a little bit on the, on the evening time, that gives me enough rest in REM cycles to hopefully stave off some of those really nasty things like dementia and Alzheimer's. I'm, I'm, um, now, now, there's nothing wrong with taking a nap in the middle of the day, though. Either. Yeah. So if you have the ability to do that, maybe when your kids are in school, then take that nap. You know, Try to make it no more than 90 minutes because we, yeah. we don't want it to, to eat away at our sleep the, 90, the, the, the next night. Yeah. Uh, but definitely we want to yeah. maximize as much cycling we can, as we can have. I, I fight those, and I hate them, Doc, because Honestly, brother, I feel worse once I take yeah. an hour nap or, like you said, the hour-ish nap. I feel worse. The rest of the day is bad enough. I'm sluggish, but the rest of the day is shot. I have no energy after yeah. after that nap. Yeah, it's like that momentum, right? You want to yeah. eat, Your body Yuck. wants to keep on staying at it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a 15 to 20-minute nap in my truck parked at H-E Butt or <laughs> parked at Walmart, a 15 20-minute nap, as as weird as it feels, like I, I go to sleep, I look at the clock. It's you know ten o two. I'm listening to Tim do his news break, uh, or you know whatever. It's two minutes after there, and I wake up like fifteen twenty minutes into a talk show with the radio still still blaring, and it didn't it didn't feel like I slept, but I did sleep. But then all my oh, yeah. all my energy is back. What did I just cycle out of my brain, out of my my veins? What just cycled out that all of a sudden I do have a second and have all this energy and all the sleepies that were you know threatening me going into the next lane are gone. Yeah, well, and, and so you know there is a lot of uh, reason, but that fifteen to twenty minute sleep uh, sleep little nap is actually really beneficial. What it does is it's going to kind of reset all of our body processes, and so instead instead of fighting what's fighting us through the day and fighting the day that as it comes. This gives our body a chance to relax and kind of recuperate. It's kind of like when you're working out, it's sometimes pretty good to take a breather. Uh, the body feels like it's working out all day when we're, when we're stressed out and we're dealing with work and we're dealing with kids and we're dealing with our families. It is nice to have a little bit of a break. And, and by taking that little nap, we yeah. give that body the yeah. break. Um, and that way we can have a little bit more energy to the next, to the next thing. And we, we actually get better body processes and so we're just much more efficient. So Thanks. I think you're doing really good. Thanks, Dr. Max. Good meeting you, sir. We'll call you back. Dr. Max Kirk calling us from Central Texas, sleep expert. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Our guest, Michael Lynn, an expert in business management issues, helping businesses properly manage assets, whether it's people or money. Mike, I appreciate your time. 
employee loyalty for businesses. Some of that might be linked to the type of retirement programs that have been set up. Has there been a change of late that is leading to more people bolting from their jobs? Because, man, look at the number of openings that are right now, and look look at the number of people that are jumping from job to job, despite the threat of recession, they say. So what do you think? Yeah, sure. Um, traditionally, we had a retirement plan called a defined benefit, and then uh, we switched to defined contribution, and uh, which is uh, um, not, not a guarantee. So people... So uh, retirement plan is no longer a tool to keep employees sticking around. And uh, the 401k is not the one and only tool that management can use to keep employees sticking around. But as I show around the country, I teach people there are things you can do as an individual manager Mm -hmm. to help to keep your best employees to stick around for that, as long as possible. Yeah, that seems to be quite and, a challenge uh, these days. So what are you telling some of these managers and business owners? What, what do they do to keep the top talent? Okay, okay. And uh, I teach them my, uh, uh, the, the history of the, uh, of the uh, retirement plan, but I also I teach them a three-step process that they can use to keep their employees around. Um, do you have time for us to get into it? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh, do you want me to talk about the history or talk about uh, what we're going to do today? Well, try to give me the history, if you can, in about 60 seconds, to, you know, minute, minute and a half, just real brief. Okay. And, then, and then the three-step okay. process to keep those good people. Okay. So uh, roughly from 1950 to 1990, uh, the retirement was called defined benefit. That is, when you retire after working for us for a lifetime, 40 years, we're going to give you uh, a retirement that is fixed uh, that is uh, fixed in amount and also linked with inflation. So that was a highly effective tool to keep people sticking around for 40 years. But then as we live longer and longer, and uh, large corporations cannot afford to keep on paying and paying. So uh, the whole Western industrialized world changed from defined benefit to, to defined contribution. Um, where uh, every month a certain amount is cut out from your pay to contribute to your own retirement, which is uh, being used on Wall Street. But then uh, how much are you going to collect when you retire or if you're going to collect at all? Uh, well, we can't guarantee because uh, we don't control Wall Street. <laughs> That's right. So, yeah. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. It could be a lot, or it could be nothing. Like, what are we right now? Like twenty market wise, just from the Eagles' perch, we're like twenty five percent down, twenty twenty five percent down compared to just a couple of years back as far as the valuation at the market. Okay, so we got that. So, um, I suppose the company could say, "Well, we'll put more in the piggy bank." You or maybe they're limited, right? They're limited in the amount of money they they could put, like dollar per dollar, toward retirement savings, right? The companies. Yes. Um, like I said, you know, you and I, we don't control Wall Street. And uh, imagine if you're retiring tomorrow and then the stock market crashes. I had a student in my seminar room. Uh, he got up on his feet and he said he worked for Enron 
he went through the whole thing. He lost everything: his job, his retirement, his savings, his house, his cars, his wife, everything. And he was extremely upset, and rightfully so. Which is a great lesson in diversification. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. That that was a lesson with Enron. All that stock, all those investments. You got to diversify. And quite frankly, if the market were to crash and the economy dies, even those companies that old school, if they guaranteed a check, ain't no check coming in. There's no more money because all of industry, all of investment. All of Wall Street is dead, but that's of course in a an ap- apocalyptic type of situation where yes, you know nobody. That's why can, yeah. that's that's why I teach managers. As a manager in a corporation, you don't control what's the four hundred one k, okay, and you don't control Wall Street. So th- that's beyond you. Yeah. But there are something I can teach you that will help you to make you a more effective manager. That will help you to get your best employees to stick around for as long as possible. All right. So, if you can, maybe in a couple of minutes, real quick, the th- what are the three suggestions then to try to keep these folks? Yeah, um, it's a very quick uh, three-step uh, process. Step one is you cultivate the sort of relationship between you and each and every one of your employees, so they feel comfortable talking to you, telling you their. Everything from inspiration to aspiration to what they want, what they don't want, what they love, what they hate. And step two is you listen, and you really listen, and、uh, you are forever developing and improving your emotional intelligence and your emotional maturity. So you really understand what the employees want, even though they themselves cannot verbalize it. And step three is you just、uh, help them to get what they want. Be it they want to advance their career, they want to learn、uh, industry insight, they want wisdom from you, or、uh, they maybe they are not so、uh, linking their、uh, profession with their、uh, hobby, their self identity. Their feeling is, you know, I just work here. This is how I earn a living. My life is somewhere else,、mm-hmm. and I need to get up at three to go pick up my kids. You help them was what they want. Sure. And then when they feel you understand me, you're helping me, then I'm gonna stick around with you. I don't、Great、know what's out there.、All、Great suggestions.、Risky. Yeah. No. All. You know. You're telling me all this, and I'm thinking relationship management. Where, as a manager or as a business owner, you take time to develop relationship with your clients. With the people that are providing you bread and butter, but you do that with your employees. You know, you're telling me this. I'm thinking undercover boss, where <laughs> right? You've, you know, where they go behind the scenes. They they pretend to be an employee, and they discover the needs, the wants, the dreams of their employees, and then they develop a relationship with these people and move forward with somehow providing it for them. Yes, you, you could yes. change.、Things. That's great suggestions. Think undercover boss.、Yes. Do it with all your employees. Develop a relationship with all them. Great suggestions. Thank you, Michael. Yes, I appreciate your suggestion. Where do they find you online, Michael? You have a website or a book? Yeah, they can come and connect with me at、uh, coachmichaelin dot com. That's L I N coachmichaelin dot com. And、uh, I do、uh, leadership workshops, seminars, keynote speech,、right. and also one-on-one private coaching. Take care, Mike. We'll talk to you soon. That's CoachMichaelN. dot com.
This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's morning news weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We're listening to enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's morning news with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Look for his new book called Baseball's Endangered Species. Baseball expert Lee Lowenfish. He's an, ex- an expert when it comes to the history and the craft of scouting good players in baseball. It's a real pleasure speaking with you, Lee. Now, I called you because I'm a big fan of the Houston Astros all my life. And one thing I've noticed about these boys, I don't know how they did it over the past decade plus. I kind of suspect it might have been a little bit of a, a mix of maybe frontline management ownership. Craig Biggio's in the, in the mix. Nolan Ryan was there in the mix for a while. They have an amazing farm program. It's like the gift that keeps on giving the, the minor league teams that they have. And they're, they're scouting the Americas and going to the Caribbean and finding all these great pitchers and batters from from Cuba to the Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico. They have an amazing farm system in Houston. So I said, man, I got to bring Lee on the program. Have you been keeping up with individual teams and how good their farming systems are, Lee? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, um, my, my prior book was a biography of Branch Rickey. And when I, I I love talking to people from Texas, I, uh, the, um, uh, Pepper Martin, who was probably Rickey's favorite player, uh, broke in uh, in in, uh, in farm teams in in Texas, and then he moved. And uh, it was really, he was originally from Oklahoma. And and in this new book, uh, Baseball's Endangered Species, I have a whole chapter on on Red Murph, uh, who signed Nolan Ryan when Nolan was weighed 140 pounds, and his high school coach didn't think he was even the best pitcher on the team. <laughs> so, I mean, the scouts are so important. And, and of course, Houston, uh, Houston has had good management, too. I mean, first with Larry Dierker, who I've, I've gotten to know, and now Dusty Baker came along yeah. at just the right time after, yeah. the, uh, after the scandal with the stolen signs. So, yeah. uh, no, Houston is a, uh, an ex- perfect example of how important uh, scouting yeah. is. And that's how the Yankees got built. And uh, another chapter in the new book is about Paul Critchell, who it will be 100 years ago this month. Paul Critchell saw Lou Gehrig play at Rutgers for Columbia. Then he saw him play a few days later at Columbia. And uh, a couple of days after that, he was signed uh, to be a Yankee. So it, it's... Um, uh, farming is so important. It also gives fans a chance to see how players develop because this is the hardest game of all, yeah. and, and and it's based on failure. and And the scouts are the first wave to say uh, player X will not emerge because he just doesn't have the quickness of bat or the liveness of arm, or 
I've seen him uh, after games, and he doesn't take care of his body. And and, and so it's so important, and I'm I'm so glad you you appreciate it. Yeah, I, for me, brother, Nolan Ryan is the greatest of all time. And the numbers are are there. I I found it amazing. He never won a Cy Young in his career. But he proved them all. I would hope, by the way, let me reintroduce my guest, Lee Lowenfish is author of Baseball's Endangered Species. We're talking about the scouts, those individuals who see something, who see a spark, they see potential, and they're the ones that are responsible for bringing them into the farm league and eventually into Major League Baseball. But I would hope, Lee, that at Cooperstown, I, I want to go, I haven't, I haven't been there. That's, that's one of on the items on my bucket list. I, I must go to Cooperstown. I want to go visit oh, the must. Hall of Fame. And, and, and if you're in the Northeast, you should go to the Cape Cod Baseball League, too. I'll be there, brother. Yeah. So many of the stars of the future have played, you know, still as amateurs. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's so much a part of our country. I'm, I'm happy to say, too, that one of the positive things that are happening, there are a lot of now wood bat summer leagues uh, in, in Texas, in the North Woods, uh, uh, big seasons. They use the wood bats because, and uh, you know, you're not, you're, then you'll never have aluminum bats in, in pro ball because the players are too strong, they're too quick. But the, the sooner you get wood bats in your hand, the better you will be. And, and, and one of the heartwarming stories in my book is how a scout for the Reds who knew he had no chance of getting Chipper Jones as an amateur, still went up to him when he was in the eighth grade and gave him a box of wooden bats, saying, you know, the sooner you get used to this, the better. You know, So there's so many acts of kindness that scouts have done over the years that I, I tried to tell some of them in the new book. The reason I mentioned Cooperstown Hall of Fame baseball is I would hope that the greatest scouts – of baseball history are also celebrated. Tell me Red Murph is remembered or acknowledged at, at Cooperstown somebody because his discovery of Nolan Ryan, he did our nation, he did baseball history a favor by uh, talking up that boy that eventually became, the, in my opinion, the greatest pitcher of all time in baseball today. Well, he, he, he also, he also found Jerry Koosman. Uh, uh, b- b- uh, before there was a draft, the year before there was a draft, Koosman was playing, uh, for an army team in Fort Bliss in El Paso. Wow. And and he was overweight. <laughs> but but Kusman, uh you know, Murph got to know to to know him and he and looked in into his eye. In fact one of his colleagues and rivals, Amel Didier from Baton Rouge, uh, has this great a, a phrase about the uh, uh, eyeball to eyeball and belly button to belly button. I mean that's the way you you appraise people, and and uh, Red Murph found out about Koosman that he had started junior college, didn't like his coach, the coach didn't like him, so he went into the army and and was playing ball, and the the Mets he was working for the Mets at the time. Murph uh, he gets a tip from an, the usher at Shea Stadium that's just been opened that the uh, his son the usher's son is catching Koosman at Fort Bliss, and you should check them out. I will, sir. And that's the kind of network yeah. that over the years has built, um, has has developed stars and 
and great players and and journeymen that that have contributed to the game. Are they remembered the in Cooperstown things, yeah. though, Lee? Are are the great scouts remembered somehow? A little, a little well, rhyme, at least know, a plaque or something at Cooperstown. Well, there there is a database. I was up there ten years ago. They had a a big a lot of scouts came, including Mel Didier, uh, who is still alive, and the. Uh, and they had a big session. Uh, they are they honored them, and there's now a database for a lot of their reports. But it never became a permanent exhibit. So okay. the short answer is no. no. It's, it's yeah. a shame. In okay. fact, I have to. I'll tell you a story that you're the first to hear. I found out about Red Murph's book, The Scout which I cite in my own book, yeah. because it was on a remainder desk at the Hall of Fame. You know. But, you know, so it, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a hard work to bring these stories back to life. Oh, but thank you for doing I it. I hope it'll yeah. help the game, yeah. because, you know, now the kids go, they get signed out of, out of area code games, and uh, they throw their arms out. Uh, they, don't, they don't even compete you know, of, uh, in games and, and it's such, it, it's such a demanding game, you know? So, yeah. Um, and but I'm, I'm, what yeah. I mentioned at the beginning, Lee, that train system, that onboarding system from the Caribbean and from Latin America, Venezuela, Mexico, the Caribbean, all this talent coming to us, Houston has invested big time in the other teams have as well. That's another book that uh, should likely be written of all this talent that's coming this way. Uh, my guest right now, here, I just got one more minute with him. Lee Lowenfish is author of Baseball's Endangered Species. He's focusing on the great scouts of baseball. That they gave us some of the greatest names uh, in baseball. I want to ask your quick opinion, Lee, before I let you go. Look, I'm, I'm conservative in life in beliefs, in politics, and when it comes to baseball, don't touch it. I'm very conservative yeah. on that. Leave it alone. I'm, I want to get your thoughts on the the fatter bases, the clock, the no-shift rule, and God forbid a computer doing calling balls and strikes. Just want to get your thoughts on this. Well, I, I, I'm sort of glad that the shift is gone because I, if only just the aesthetics, you know, I don't go to a baseball game to see a T formation in right field, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, there was the Lou Boudreaux started the Ted Williams shift, you know, I understand the shift about against great players and, 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 the, and take his home run power away maybe, but it shouldn't be about everyone at the bigger bases. Uh, 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 I agree with you on, on most of these changes or, or just cosmetic, yeah. and, you know, the biggest problem that's been Dealing now for decades, Al Jackson from Waco, Texas, one of my favorite people, rest in peace, a great pitcher and a pitching coach. Al Jackson said the problem was, and he told me this over 30 years ago, pitchers don't want to pitch and hitters don't want to hit. They stay, and they're trying to cut down on that, more power to that, on okay. that and, and more power to keeping uh, players from playing really out of position. But as far as the, you know, the Manford man, the extra man, I'm, I'm offended by that. And the bigger bases, I mean, the, the, the distance between 
home and first and second and third and home. Yeah. 90 feet was, I mean, why? We need an asterisk for this on on the stolen bases number for this season. We're going to need an asterisk. I got to let you go, Lee. It's a pleasure. We'll call you again. Thank you so much for your time. We wish you great success. Uh, Look for his book, Baseballs and Dangerous Species. It hits the bookshelves in April. That's author Lee Lowenfish. This is The Sergio Show. Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Breaking news. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have an In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. The one word that got my attention when I was reading this article. You know, I'm a Trekkie. Borg. And the Borgs are taking over college parties and going, what? I did a double take. Kim May is a licensed professional counselor, addiction expert. She's up in Central Texas, up in Austin. Kim, I appreciate your time today. What is a... Yeah, thank you for having me. What is this Borg and his resistance futile? <laughs> I know for people who are really into sci-fi, it's so disappointing that it's not cooler than it is. Oh man, blackout rage gallon. Explain. Yes. Yeah. Explain. So yes, the Borg is a gallon container that has been partially emptied out. People are adding alcohol to it. Sometimes water and enhancing, you know, those flavor enhancing droplets. Sometimes sports drink, fruit punch. Uh, For the people who are a little more cautious, they're adding Pedialyte. And then however much liquor they choose. And then they've got their own personalized gallon container to carry around. Mm, 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 mm. How strong is this concoction, do you know? You know, and that's really where this varies from being a really safe choice to an incredibly dangerous one. You know, on the safe side... People who don't really want to drink very much but kind of want to fit in can put just a really small amount of liquor in there and no one has to know. On the other side, on the dangerous end, people can, you know, are filling half of it with vodka, which could, you know, be anywhere from, you know, 16 to 43, 50 standard drinks in there, which is, of course, incredibly dangerous, especially if they're consuming it quickly. Yeah, I'm... Have you heard of any, God forbid, have you heard of any uh, any students going, drinking too much as a result of spring break so far because of this Borg rage, this, this thing that's all in fashion? You know, there was, yeah, there was an issue up in Massachusetts recently um, during some kind of annual party that they had where there were a whole lot of ambulance requests called out, and they... They declined to give a comment, but, you know, it's believed that a lot of that was attributable to this Borg trend. But in reality, you know, binge drinking, way overdoing it, especially on spring break, 
is nothing new. The Borg trend is new, but this is an old theme that we see play out over and over, generation after generation. Yeah, always improvising a way to consume alcohol. Again, it's a jug of a gallon jug of water. They empty this thing. They put their desired alcohol drink in there, and then they go like snow cone style. Like here in South Texas, they add all sorts of flavoring to it. Uh, the the, mm-hmm. Those little droplets, powder drink, Kool-Aid, whatever, they'll put it in there, and they'll be sipping that, I guess, all night long. To, to show how popular this thing is, unfortunately, you know, the masses, the young ones, the children in our community, even college kids, they're, mentally speaking, they're children. we got a lot of adults who are children on TikTok as well. <laughs> but uh, sure. how, how popular this thing is, uh, almost 75 million views. This whole hashtag Borg, this Borg thing, this drink. About 75 million views on TikTok, so it's all the rage for spring break right now. And if you have any suggestions for parents uh, that might have high school kids or maybe college, you know, college kids, um, how do you start this conversation to hopefully keep them safe? Yeah, one of the best things to do is you know try to withhold judgment, which I know can be difficult if you suspect your child is carrying around a gallon of vodka, but really, to, <laughs> but really to talk about safety. You know, we know that young people and college kids are going to drink, and unfortunately, they're probably going to do it irresponsibly, but there's even just small things that can really make a huge difference. Do kids understand the importance of hydrating before they drink alcohol, eating, before they drink alcohol. Just hydration and food can go a long way in helping prevent, you know, alcohol levels to getting to such a dangerous level. Um, Talking to kids about pacing, you know, drinking four drinks over four hours means something different than having four drinks in 30 minutes. And that's the kind of stuff that younger kids just don't know. They just don't understand. And so when we come at them and we say, no, 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 don't do this, it's dumb, well, then they just kind of go the other way, and we it doesn't really leave room for education around safety. Well, just be truthful. It could be deadly. You might kill yourself drinking too much of this crap. Absolutely. If you're trying, to be, trying to be the popular one on campus. Um, uh, I would hope that, well, each family, uh, it's its own universe, and you know how to deal with this uh, with your kids. You know your kids best. All right. Thank you, Kim. I appreciate your time. From Central Texas. Licensed professional counselor addiction expert, Kim May. This is The Sergio Show.